0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, We're going to turn away from uh, political news, uh, the headlines in political news today, to talk about a subject that in many ways is about as urgent as anything not only the state faces, the country, but the globe itself. And that is climate change. Um, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Bob Dylan who famously said, uh, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Well, uh, if you're here in Georgia, you don't need a weatherman to tell you how hot it has been in this state so far this summer. Temperatures in the upper 90s here in Atlanta alone. um, Data reveal that we're living through the hottest stretch of weather in almost a century. There are only a few years that have been hotter Global temperatures are on the rise. We know droughts are a severe problem, extreme weather events. We're going to talk about all that and more with two leading experts on the subject of climate change. Um, And I want to uh, first introduce Greg Bluestein, who, of course, is my partner on the Wednesday show. You know Greg is the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Greg, I know this is a subject that you want to weigh in on. And one of the things that we'll ask about at some point is the fact that uh, climate change has virtually dropped out of the political dialogue. And it's you know we don't hear it in campaigns at all anymore. And we will talk about that at some point in the show. In the meantime, how are you, Greg?
2: I'm great, and you're exactly right. Um, <laughs> it, it, it has fallen out of a, a lot of the conversation. That's partly our fault in the media. And so we need to do a better job of pressing the candidates on where they stand on on climate change and what they do to fix it.
1: Well, uh, I think that's exactly right, um, and that's why we're doing the show today, among other reasons. Um, we're joined today by Dr. Marshall Shepard, who is the director of the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia. Um, he is a longtime international expert on weather and climate. He's a former president of the American Meteorological Society, been the host of Weather Geeks uh, on Weather Channel it's a, it, and podcasting. Um, past chair of NASA's Earth Science Advisory Committee. Um, uh, professor Shepard, we could go on with your uh, credits for a very long time, but suffice it to say we're very pleased that you will uh, take some time to join us today. How are you doing?
3: Bill, thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure.
1: We're also joined uh, by a colleague who you've worked with over the years, Dr. Marilyn Brown, professor of sustainable Systems at Georgia Tech, but also the co-founder of the Southeast Energy Efficiency Alliance, and we'll talk about um, what that organization has done over the years as well today. Um, Professor, I I also want to point out that when I was uh, looking over your credits, I came across a book that you uh, wrote, uh, uh, were one of the authors of a number of years ago, called Fact Fact and Fiction. (laughs) in global energy policy, and I think that book uh, really asks some questions that we're going to want to get into during the show today. Among the questions are, is industry the chief energy villain? Can we sustainably feed and fuel the planet at the same time? Is nuclear power worth the risk? Those are questions that at some point today we should get into, so thanks for being here, uh, Professor.
0: Oh, thanks. That was a fun book to write. We tried to show both sides of the each of the uh, themes, you know, there's a yes, there's a, there's a no. it it's, uh, all depends sometimes on the perspective.
1: Uh, I okay, so we're going to get into all that. but but, um, Professor Shepard, having you here and given your long career at NASA, I really want to start by asking you to spend just a couple of minutes telling us about your reaction to seeing those extraordinary images from the James Webb Space Telescope, a project that's been in the works for years at NASA, and now we see the first results. Uh, Professor Shepard?
3: You know, I was... <laughs> I'm still a science geek at heart, so I, I, I'm just thrilled when I see things like that. And I spent 12 years of my career at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, walking uh, side by side with some of the engineers and scientists on the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. So I was like, "Wow!" But you know, it came to mind, um, you know, as I was thinking about this. I know that there's still people out there that say, "Well, why are we spending all of this money on space telescopes and going to Mars when we have inflation and things right here in our backyard?" And so so, you know, I was thinking about it because invariably a weather forecast that we use today or the GPS that you're going to use to get somewhere this weekend on vacation or perhaps uh, even the vaccines that we've taken for the, the for COVID, all of these things develop from research and development that had nothing apparently to do with your day-to-day lives from our perspectives. So the point I'm making is the wonder and awe of those images represents Science and technological achievements that ultimately do benefit society, but it also represents the spirit of exploration and so forth. Imagine uh, if those before us had not decided to go west uh, in this own country and say, sort of, that's not, I'm just kind of concerned what's happening here on the eastern side of the United States. So, the spirit of exploration and research and development are embodied in those images, and they are just Omg! Is the kids say on social media these days? That's the kind of how
1: I know Well, let me let me tie it directly into what we're going to talk about on the show today. You wrote a piece for uh, Forbes. You you do a contribute to them uh, on, on on a fairly regular basis, and you talked about the space telescope. And uh, one of the things you talked about there is just what you're saying that you worry about this local bias thinking, where we we can't see the troubles that are affecting other people. Our answer to them is say, well, it's not affecting us. Why should we worry about it here? And and so you go on to say that there are people who will say that climate change is about a polar bear. It's not happening in our community. And then you say it's not true. Heat, rainstorms, drought, hurricanes, and possible sea level rise are quite relevant to many communities. And some of our research has identified U.S. counties at greatest risk from climate change. So it, it ties in directly. And Greg... Just You and I are the non-scientists on this panel. The other thing that occurs to me in looking at those four pictures now that we've seen from the space telescope is uh, obviously the vastness of the universe, but what a fragile little planet we really are and why taking care of it matters so much, Greg.
2: Yeah, what a small corner of the universe we take up. Because as, as compelling as those images were, what really got me was the sort of uh, the video that showed the zoom in on that sector and what a huge array of, of galaxies and, and, and stars um, that there were you know on the, on the picture before it was even zoomed in you know so that was a zoom in and a zoom in and a zoom in of a little small sector <laughs> of, of what what the telescope was seeing. so um, it really put in perspective for me in a way that that I hadn't even realized before. Um, what, a, what a small part of this universe we are and how important it is to, uh, to take care of our little piece of it.
0: You know, from a societal perspective, we also use a lot of data analytics right here on the ground to figure out what's going on. And one of the types that excites me the most is the citizen science that we've been able to engage in, as some of the folks at uh, Georgia Tech, UGA, and Spellman did last summer when they asked the question, you know is the heat impacting different neighborhoods in Atlanta differentially and the answer was a big yes including a range of heat that uh, could be as high as 6 degrees because many of the neighborhoods don't have trees they've got a lot of pavement they've got a lot of heat reflected a lot of bad albedo out there so you know data is so important at all scales and the scale i mostly focus on is the uh, is this is the scale of the city the uh, suburbs and rural Georgia.
1: I, I we're gonna. I want to get into that with a little more depth in a couple of minutes because you're right. It, it's terribly important to this conversation, especially as the Georgia population shifts from rural parts of the state to urban centers. But let me start with a broader uh, uh, look at this, if I might, uh, Professor Shepard. Uh, I'm looking at the data from your old employer, NASA. And uh, they have a great page that summarizes where climate stands uh, that we should, uh, uh, Chase, we should post it on um, our social media so people can look. Um, And they do kind of a summary. So let me just go over a few of the things they say, Professor, and you pull out what you'd like to talk about. They point out carbon dioxide levels in the air are at their highest in 650,000 years. Uh, Global temperature is up. More than uh, one degree Celsius, and that 19 of that since uh, 1880, and 19 of the warmest years have occurred since 2000. Uh, They say that Arctic Arctic sea ice extent is shrinking at a rapid pace, down 13% since the late 70s. They talk about sea level, where there is a four-inch rise since early in 1993. The oceans are getting warmer. We could go on, but but take those and talk about what that says in general and which of those you think we should really be concerned about most right now.
3: Well, my good colleagues at NASA, I love them to death, and I'm a part of the fold. I I think that website is useful, but it still doesn't get to the point for someone in Noonan, Georgia, or someone in Canton, Georgia, in terms of what that means for them and their communities. Uh, That heat... Uh, Manifest itself in in, in more extreme and intense heat waves that affect someone in Blue Ridge. Uh, That heat affects the intensity of the rain rates because we know that the climate system, as it warms, can have access to more water vapor. So when we're driving down Interstate 85, as I was this weekend going to my son's AAU basketball game, 85 could not handle that rainfall. It was literally ponding on 85 because our infrastructure is overwhelmed by this generation's rainstorms. The sea level rise in coastal communities in Savannah and Brunswick and so for St. Simons, uh, they are impacted, the shrimp uh, industry there, because of the warming temperatures. I still think as I drive back down to my alma mater at Florida State University sometimes and I drive through Albany and Cairo and some of those places and see those pecan trees and other agricultural activity overwhelmed by Hurricane Michael, newsflash, we're not supposed to have a 100-mile-per-hour gust from a hurricane that far inland, but that's the reality of more intense hurricanes as we move forward. So um, one of the things that I know Marilyn and I both think quite a bit about is sort of moving this sort of... I've retowered jargon about climate science mm. into the sort of real world. And I know, I know there's someone listening to this. Well, so, Dr. Shepard, Dr. Brown, the climate changes naturally. It always has. We've always had hurricanes. Indeed, we have. We certainly know that. But I always use this analogy to make the point about why that's a flawed narrative. Grass grows naturally too. But when we fertilize our lawns, it grows differently. And so that's what's happening to our climate system. We're fertilizing it.
1: So, uh, Greg, I want to give you a chance to jump in and ask questions in a minute, but let me follow up with uh, Professor Brown on that uh, for just a moment. Um, Professor, are we, uh, uh, are we entering periods? Is, is there anything anomalous about how hot the uh, state of Georgia has been this summer? Or is this the beginning of the fact that my children are going to have to live in hotter and hotter climates if we don't f- find a way to mitigate uh, the problems with climate change.
0: Yeah, I think you've got it right. It's a trend, and uh, we've got to bend the trend of the curve in the future. However, it's very unlikely that we'll return to the past. Uh, that was a con- that was a conclusion of the last intergovernmental panel on climate change report, um, which concluded that uh, there are now limits to adaptation. We have taken the climate now into some extremes that uh, we can't recover from. And the typical examples you hear about are coral reefs and rainforests and coastal wetlands. But for people, there are places now where the combination of heat and humidity makes it impossible to for life to proceed without protections, without air conditioning, without breezes without you know artificial supplementation supplementing of uh you know, conditions to make it livable so we've we've in a sense hit some limits that we won't be able to go back on, and I find that so depressing I don't want to leave on that note, but that is an important note to. I think your listeners, to hear.
1: Greg, you want to jump in? Yeah,
2: I mean, Professor Shepard, I, I want to go back to something you said about Hurricane Michael, because I think that was a wake-up call to some Georgians who thought that community, communities far from the shore um, were somewhat insulated from these from, the, from higher-energy um, hurricanes. Um, I mean, and Matthew and Irma in 2016 and 2017 reminded us that even though we have a, this sort of concave coastline, we can still be sideswiped by these very powerful hurricanes, and then and then Michael followed up, reminding us that hey, now now they're affecting communities hundreds of miles of inland. Uh, do you see this trend continuing because of the higher uh, higher climate, high, higher temperatures,
3: Greg? I, I mean the. the Peer-reviewed literature is crystal clear on this. Um, uh, and again, even some that were essentially initially doubtful are now kind of in the camp that notes that going forward, we from today forward, we expect a generation of stronger storms. Not necessarily more of them, but when they happen, they'll be more intense. And what that means for Georgians is even if we're not getting direct landfalls on our coast. Uh, We'll have these storms occasionally, like a Michael or an Irene or so forth, that move further inland with intensity. And and, and we'll see more examples of exactly what we saw with uh, Michael. Or if you go to the Carolinas with Florence a few years ago, it actually really wasn't that strong, but it exhibited another characteristic we expect from climate change affecting hurricanes. It stalled. It sat there Mm -hmm. and just dumped Copious amounts of rainfall on many of those agricultural communities, where there's poultry and, and swine farming in the Carolina coastal plain. Uh, so these stalling storms, like we saw with Harvey in Houston a few years ago, those are telltale signs of what we have warned about, even in some of my own research that I've done at the University of Georgia, on what we expect. So that's why my my narrative really centers around, you know, yeah, we're going to be two, three, five, four, ten 10 degrees warmer than normal. That's sort of part of the story. That's like the fever to the COVID or the flu. But all of the other symptoms, symptoms associated with climate change, uh, the, the the heavier rainstorms, the hurricanes, the wildfires, and so forth, those are the things that affect kitchen table lives of Georgians in terms of what they're paying for Cheerios, gasoline, and so forth.
0: And I think our narrative has failed recently to uh, warn folks in the southeast about forest fire potential problems going forward. We hear about it in California, the West Coast, you know, is... Uh, hitting records of damages but here in the east we have had a good couple of years however i do remember back in the late 2000s when uh east uh, tennessee and north georgia were severely hit and i we need to figure out how to be prepared when that reoccurs
1: so uh, i i you know uh, Professor Shepard, you talked about not wanting to geek out. You want to make this understandable to people like me and Greg. But I do think we need to geek out for just a minute. Help us understand the science of why the planet is getting hotter and hotter. I think that's crucial to our conversation. Right. I, I, it, it is.
3: And, again, you know... The key point here is, again, I mean, I've been at this a while, so I've heard every climate contrarian thing that – I mean, there's nothing you can say to me out there that I haven't heard in terms of why we're frauds or why this <laughs> is hoax, but it's actually just science. I mean, look, uh, after the Industrial Revolution, we figured out, and it was a good thing for society, how to burn fossil fuels. And so if you look at the naturally varying climate, and yes, our climate varies naturally, uh, we got outside of that rather quickly as we started to burn fossil fuels. And so um, most people attribute the heating of our planet to the Mr. Sun that's up in the sky. I remember my kids used to sing this song, Mr. Sun. But in fact, the sun is just part of the, the, the issue. The, the energy from the sun comes in, and then those greenhouse gases absorb and re-radiate. And so we have this greenhouse effect. We survive Every night after we wake up from sleep because of the greenhouse effect, if not, we'd be too cold. That greenhouse effect is important. However, uh, as we've gotten out of balance, we are actually warming our climate system to a point where uh, it disrupts uh, various weather patterns. It uh, melts uh, uh, the ice in the in the Arctic region, and that leads to further warming because of something called a positive feedback. There's no ice reflecting that heat, so it gets absorbed and then warms the atmosphere so these things are now causing uh changes in All aspects of the climate system, our oceans, our ecosystems, and even for us as human beings. So it's honestly just basic physics, things that we've known about for hundreds of years, about how the atmosphere will respond to greenhouse gases. And so that's really the basic physics of of what's going on in terms of the warming. But that warming leads to other things.
1: Um, You know what, Greg? It strikes me what what, what, uh, uh, Professor Shepard is saying. And I know, uh, Professor Brown, you would weigh in on this too. We're kind of we're living in this giant uh, terrarium, is what it really amounts to. Uh, I actually bought a terrarium for our house a couple of years ago and got very clear directions on how to sustain it, keep things going, and within about three months, the whole thing had died completely. <laughs> but the point is, Greg, we realize that there's a balance here for our entire planet, is what uh, Professor Shepard's talking about.
2: Yeah, and Dr. Brown, it seems like we're we're out of that balance, and, and I guess one of the key questions is, how do we, <laughs> are we too far out of that balance to make any lasting change at this point?
0: Well, right now we don't have uh, solutions to turn the dial back uh, in time. Which I, there is a possibility we can, uh, you know, we we can put chemicals into the atmosphere to reflect the sun. We can uh, absorb the CO2 into uh, solid products and bury them. We can, uh, you know, plant more trees and put more carbon in our soil. There are things we can do, and if taken to a to extreme, we could. Uh, Go back. I said we can't go back. We could go back, but it would it would be a heroic effort. For now, we really need to taper the speed of the damage. And Marshall was correct in saying it it is the burning of fossil fuels as a preliminary, the primary culprit. And we don't want to forget that message that we know what the cause of climate change is, and it is the CO2 that's being released from coal, from a natural gas. And from oil.
1: Greg, you want to weigh in again?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I, my,
2: my next question is for Professor Shepard, because given all those challenges, given the fact that it would take this heroic effort, um, what can be done? We can talk about federal lo- later, but what can be done at the state level? Because we're about to have, you know, gubern- we're about to have a gubernatorial election where this has not really come up as a major issue, but it could. Um, what should we hear from, from the candidates on this?
3: Well, you know, I, I I generally try to stay in my lane of the science and not sort of, you know, get too much on the advising of what policy should say. and But I, what I will say, and Marilyn and I are both involved in the Georgia Climate Project, and Marilyn leads the Drawdown Georgia effort funded by the Ray C. Anderson Foundation, which has looked at, and Marilyn can talk all about this, looked at the top solutions that can draw our carbon emissions down by 2030 in the state of Georgia. Uh, Between the Drawdown Georgia effort and some of the efforts at the Georgia Climate Project, including the Georgia Climate Conference, uh, there is a playbook available to policymakers in this state that can move us forward. Uh, there is, you know, We've done the work. The academics and our partners and NGOs and private sector, we've put in the work here in the state. So uh, for either candidate, either political perspective out there, uh, the Georgia Climate Project, Drawdown Georgia, has a template for information. I will say that, I, I mean, it, yeah, I think in a stealth way, the state actually is doing fairly well in terms of, you know, look at the, the Rivian truck plant and the EV battery plant up. I 85 and various other things there are really some exciting sort of sustainable activities that will help our climate going on within our state but i just want to emphasize and marilyn you can pick up on this because you're the leader of drawdown georgia we have a play we've done the work uh, for uh policymakers when they're ready to move on this topic
0: we do so the state does need to initiate a dialogue amongst our legislative and gubernatorial leaders right how the playbook? Can they? Do they want to adjust it? What is the best uh, roadmap for Georgia? And and adopt a plan. First, adopt a goal. Then adopt a plan. That's the usual um, chronology. So, 24 states of the U.S. have goals. 20 states in the U.S. have plans for achieving those carbon reduction goals. And yeah, I think that's uh, not asking too much to set uh, out a goal and. And a plan for doing that. We, our plan from Jordan, Georgia would reduce the state's CO2 emissions 50% by 2030 relative to the baseline benchmark of 2005. That is the goal that the uh, carbon, the, the the carbon reduction goal of the Climate uh, Paris Agreement. And we showed how we can do it and grow the economy. Uh, As you've all said, so much is happening in the business realm in Georgia, including having the largest solar assembly plant in Dalton and the EV um, battery recycling new facility being built uh, east of of Atlanta. We are in a leadership role in terms of creating and nurturing the businesses that need to make our solutions happen. Now we just need to to, uh, I think, plan to round out the picture and, and make more and happen.
3: And I, and I would say, I mean, we've seen bipartisan action on this. There was a bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed um, recently, and soon there will be money flowing and there will be policy flowing around that to increase uh, EV charging stations and other aspects of our infrastructure that will help climate. And so, you know, having been in the federal system for a while, sometimes these things are big bureaucratic slow moving ships in terms of how you take this massive legislation and funding and implement it at the state local levels. And so I think there are opportunities there for local jurisdictions, state policymakers and so forth uh, to figure out how to make, make some of that money work for Georgians, because there is going to be a ton of it coming from that bipartisan bill. Uh, but how, how, we take it and implement it in communities and implement it equitably uh, as, as Greg, Craig, and I think someone else said there, Bill, there are places within Georgia uh, where communities of color, frontline communities, even poor communities in the state of Georgia, irrespective of race, uh, will bear the brunt uh, more so of these climate disasters. And so we mm-hmm. have to think, it'll, think about equitable solutions to fill this, what I've written and called the extreme weather climate gap.
1: Um I, I, we got to get to a break, but Greg, I, I know our, our professors don't want to get into a political uh, debate here, uh, discussion here. But the reality is, Greg, that the denial of science by uh, largely Republicans has not helped this situation. I, I, there is nothing more frustrating than seeing a political leader in the middle of the winter in a city where there's been a snowstorm, Coming into a news conference with a snowball and saying, I thought they said the globe was warming. It's getting hotter. Ha, ha, ha. Greg, we do still deal with that kind of philosophy in some of our politics right now.
2: We do. And I think I'm going to steal. I'm going to do it very poorly, but I'm going to steal from Professor Shepard because he once said something about that that stuck with me, which is, um, (laughs) again, I'm going to do this very poorly, but but weather is, uh, the climate is is a personality and whether you know the weather of the day is a mood, right? And your personality could be you're a, you're a happy guy, but you're in a bad mood one day. Uh, did I do that okay, Professor Shepard?
3: You you nailed it. <laughs> and, and I
1: think that's important. Right. I
3: know you I know you got to go to break, but I'd be curious from Greg as a political expert because I think there was a lot of discussion during the last presidential debate and an election series on climate. I felt like it was some of the most active climate discussion that we'd seen. And so I'd I'd be interested in why it has tailed off.
1: All right, let's do this. That's a great uh, way to tease the next segment of the show. I also, in the next section, we have to talk about a couple other things. What does the Supreme Court ruling on EPA mean to efforts to fight climate change? And as uh, as both Professor Shepard and Professor Brown pointed out, There are plans in the works that both of them and you, Professor Brown, particularly have been deeply involved in, in trying to make a difference here in Georgia. We'll talk about all that and more with our panel after these messages.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: We're talking about climate change today on Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein from the AJC. Uh, my partner on the Wednesday show is here, so is Professor Marilyn Brown from Georgia Tech, and Professor Marshall Shepard at the University of Georgia. Um, Professor Brown, you you, you and, and Professor Shepard have already mentioned a couple times the efforts that have been uh, undertaken here that you've been both deeply involved in. You talk about the integrated uh, Georgia Integrated Resource Plan, the drawdown um, uh, plan. If, if you wouldn't mind, just take a moment to explain what those are and why they can make a what what about them might make a difference?
0: Okay, thank you so much. Well, we uh, began a project with the support of Racy Anderson Foundation called Draw Down Georgia" about five years ago, and we engaged many universities across the state, uh, UTA, Georgia State, uh, Spelman, and and uh, of course Georgia Tech, and many organizations in the communities too. To be sure that the plan, the road mapping process was uh, able to take advantage of the views of many different uh, organizations and people. So it's very participatory. And we concluded about uh, two years ago with a roadmap for Georgia, which had 20 high impact solutions. And the top of the list in terms of impact was uh, was solar farms, a large scale solar uh, power systems. And Uh, It accounts for something like a third of the impact that we think that new uh, investments in Georgia could make. But there are many other uh, solutions as well, electric vehicles, rooftop solar, planting more trees, silvopasture, a whole bunch of agricultural practices called conservation agriculture, um, and better buildings, retrofitting buildings and building um, more energy-efficient a building. So lots of um areas of the economy that need to be uh, tweaked. These are not uh, total transformations, these are uh, achievable and and doable approaches. So you know you, in terms of your heating systems and cooling systems in in homes, how about heat pumps rather than fossil fueled heating and cooling? Um in uh um the electricity system—not just uh, not just the elect- not just solar, but also cogeneration, using waste heat from industrial practices and recycling it back into the production of goods and services. So many different opportunities that make sense and would make business would make pro- greater profits, make businesses more profitable. So you know, good for the economy and good for the environment.
1: You know, Greg, uh, before the show uh, started, uh, Professor Brown mentioned to all of us that there are businesses in Georgia that are starting to move forward and working on some of these plans. But, Greg, in the long run, some of this has got to be done with government uh, uh, involvement. You can't just – all of this cannot be done by the private sector, it strikes me. And the question is, is there a will to do that?
2: Yeah, that was the exact term I was thinking of when you were asking the question. Is there a political will to do this? And look, uh, we reported seven or eight years ago that Georgia's taken initial steps to prepare for climate change, including developing at least some state long-term plans, uh, but enforcing them enacting them is a different story. The state has uh, resisted some of the more ambitious efforts taken by other states like New York, um, especially Democratic-run states. And while former Governor Nathan Deal, he supported a, a $6 million effort back in 2014 to rebuild Tybee Island's dunes, um, he said it should be up to local authorities to adopt restrictions and take other preventative measures on their own and, and not the state. And, you know, that's, that's taking a very <laughs> narrow view of something that is a, a truly global issue
3: yeah i would i would add to that i think one of the things that we've just recently started in uh here at the university of georgia and i want to um particularly give note to the uh institute for resilient infrastructure systems and the us army corps of engineers uh we have a large uh, funded partnership with the army corps uh, called the Network for Engineering with Nature, and we're looking at ways to engineer our coastlines and our our communities using nature-based solutions to mitigate uh, climate change and its impacts, and in some cases adapt. Just to sort of geek out from a solution standpoint, when Marilyn was talking about Drawdown Georgia earlier, she was talking about really what falls into a batch of what's called mitigation solutions. We're trying to mitigate uh, you know, carbon dioxide. We're trying to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the system. Uh, there are another set of policies that are called more adaptation policies, and that's really what Greg was referring to in terms of mm-hmm. coastal communities. And then Marilyn mentioned the sort of sort – of, uh, so extreme solution, which is geoengineering or climate intervention, we need a basket of all of those from a policy policy perspective, and and it needs to be from the local to the international scale. And so, you know, I you know I, I look forward to that. And you know, I know Bill, you you referred to uh, before the break the the recent Supreme Court ruling. Uh, I was I was uh, quoted in some national media as saying it felt like a gut punch to the climate movement in a sense. Uh, and I, I don't know all the legal ramifications, but I do know this: we got to get carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas greenhouse gas emissions under control. Uh, I was at NASA, but this isn't rocket science. We know what's causing sure. climate change and the problems facing our state. It's we've re- got to reduce co2 emissions and greenhouse gases then move eventually towards a renewable energy economy.
1: So uh, excuse me for if I throw something out here, Professor Shepard, that may not be clear in my mind. But do I not recall that the University, I think the University of Georgia has is monitoring, has sensors that are monitoring sea levels along the Georgia coast that are efforts to try to keep things, uh, keep things under control or look at how they can make make, uh, changes.
3: I actually think that's our colleague, Kim Cobb, that that formerly of Georgia Tech, that has now moved on oh, to Brown University. Okay. She has a really okay. amazing sea level sensor system that she's put out along the coast. I know there's some people from the University of Georgia in our Sea Grant program at NOAA at the University of Georgia. that are certainly in collaborative with uh, – shout out to Professor Kim Cobb, by the way, a uh, good colleague of Maryland and I. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so we, we – look. Bill uh, and, and and Greg, we know what's happening. We know sea level is rising. We know that the hurricanes are more intense. Uh, I, I was invited to the White House virtually a few weeks ago or maybe a few months ago now. Uh, the White House pulled together a group of scientists to talk about climate delayism. That's the new buzzword right now. I think we've actually turned the corner on the sort of debate about whether climate change is happening because the weather and hurricanes and droughts are convincing people. Um, but now there's this term called climate delayism, this idea that we know things are happening, but there's a stall, whether it's intentional or not, in terms of moving the policies through that need to be done. And so the White House brought some of us together to think about ways that we can move beyond the climate delayism at the national and local and state levels.
1: Um, all right, let me, let's talk about the uh, Supreme Court's EPA ruling. Greg, obviously we know that at the end of this session, we saw what it means to have uh, such a conservative majority on the court in, in several key rulings that came out. And one of the most anticipated, aside from the Roe ruling, aside from the New York gun ruling, was this EPA ruling. Uh, the case involved a question of whether the Environmental Protection uh, Agency had overshot its authority, overstepped its authority, by trying to control emissions at power plants around the country and asking for some significant mitigation efforts. Um, The court ruled that EPA had overstepped. And here's just one uh, part of the ruling that was written uh, by uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the uses of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day. But only Congress or an agency with express authority from a Congress can adopt a decision of such magnitude and consequence. And Greg, that ruling comes at a moment when we know Congress is unlikely to be able to get together to do anything about any issue they take on. Greg? Yeah,
2: gridlock is the word of the day in Congress uh, it's taking you know it takes a tremendous amount of political will just to get um, just to get fairly minor pieces of legislation passed and just like with the with the overturning of roe v wade we 're still not sure quite the implications the, 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 the longer range effects of this ruling because it could set the stage for new limits on the regulatory power of other agencies as well and it also could have um, significant immediate impacts on President Biden's uh, and the White House's um, plans to combat climate change, because the the president during his 2020 2020, uh, 2020 campaign, he said he was going to take a big government approach. Well, now this court opinion is is calling into question whether uh, there should be a sort of executive big government approach allowed without congressional approval.
1: Professor Brown, we do know that Georgia Power has a plan, and you'll tell me, I think, about about it in more detail than I know it, to move away from fossil fuel, from coal, produce, uh, coal plants. They are moving increasingly to more sustainable forms of energy. Um, but this is a sort of ruling that may not change their thinking, and in fact we're told they're not going to, but for um, uh, uh, electrical companies across the country, they might be disincentivized from changing over.
0: Uh, yes. So I do think you're correct, and uh, utilities will not in the short run um, feel a need to change any of their immediate plans. But um, in the long run, this has potentially very significant effects. Greg did a great job uh, summarizing that the um, Supreme Court uh, uses the major issues doctrine. They resuscitate this concept that has not been talked about for a long time, I think not since so, some of the uh, smoking uh, uh, regulations from 10, 15 years ago. So this doctrine prohibits uh, regulating emissions, what they call outside of the power plant, meaning that the um, nature of the fuel to be, gen- to be used in generating electricity Uh, cannot be dictated through executive action. The major issues doctrine says, if it's a major issue, that Congress has to be explicit in defining exactly what the rules should be and that the executive branch, i.e. Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency or uh, Department of Energy, doesn't have the authority to create the specifics unless they have been specifically Defined by um, the, uh, the Congress So it's just not, We're not going to see Any major new regulatory uh, action Under the Clean Air Act As a result of this uh, West Virginia versus EPA ruling You're correct though That in the short run It's probably not going to change Anyone's immediate plans
1: so I've got to get to a final break, uh, but when I come back, I want to ask what uh, our two uh, experts think about the fact that Georgia Power is investing so much in being the only power company in the country right now trying to put two new nuclear reactors online, and whether that's a positive solution or step toward solving uh, some of the problems we face right now. We'll do that and more after these breaks. Professor Shepard, let me start with you on this, if I may. Um, Georgia Power's uh, effort to get their new nuclear power plants online have been fraught with just immense problems and controversy. It's going to raise the rates for all Georgia Power users, even it already has, even before the plants go online. Um, They're the only current uh, constructions of nuclear plants in the country. I believe that's still the case. Um, but once they do get it up and running and join the other plant already online, is that so? Is that the beginning of a of a good step in terms of uh, cleaning the air?
3: Well, well, as I mentioned earlier, Bill, I'm I'm certainly supportive of a basket of solutions. I, I don't believe that there's one solution that will get us out of this crisis, and this is a crisis. Uh, Again, it's difficult oftentimes for Georgians to see because they can see someone in their family getting sick from COVID. Uh, They can see the impact of something that has a more immediate impact. Uh, oftentimes with the climate crisis, we don't put together the, the, the connect the dots of the Hurricane Michael and how it affects uh, the cost of a Fruit of the Loom t-shirt or uh, the cost of uh, peanut butter at the store or uh, the health implications for their kids if there are diseases now in the state that didn't uh, thrive here 30 years ago. So I, that's why I do describe this as a crisis. So I, I, you know, I certainly nuclear has some challenges, but I also am not uh, against uh, it being in the portfolio of energy production, we have to move away from uh, um, carbon-producing fuels. And I I know Marilyn can speak to this more eloquently than I can, but I think we need a mix and basket of solutions. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, we do have almost 100 nuclear units in operation in the U.S. today, and nuclear power meets about 20 percent of the electricity demand of the U.S. It is a major player, and it is essentially carbon-free. By the way, the last unit that came online was Watts Bar Unit 2 in East Georgia. I was the chair of the Nuclear Oversight Committee at the Tennessee Valley Authority. Mm-hmm. I worked for eight years to get that plant up and running. It uses the old technology, not the AP-1000. This plant in Georgia is the first of a kind in the U.S. There are types of AP-1000. There are AP-1000 plants going in to China and to uh The Middle East, but this is the one and only plant here. It is going to cost something like $30 billion in the end, and I think that's way too much. I don't know what happened. The uh, plant in East Tennessee cost a third of that, you know, and was practically uh, up and running on time, as well as just a little bit over budget. So there, it's a new plant anyway. I am all in for nuclear in general, as is Europe, by the way. Germany is reconsidering. I don't know if they will take any action to resuscitate their nuclear fleet. But now that they're unable to get, you know, we haven't talked about Ukraine, uh, the gas that they need, uh, Europe is wondering, should there be a bigger role for nuclear? And the plant is coming into England. It's now under construction, nearing completion. is uh, is becoming pretty popular. <laughs> it may help them get through the winter months. So I do like the all-in approach that Marshall talked about, and I don't think we should uh, be too. I don't think we should be too heavy-handed about the the problem of the cost. I, I know that it's a ratepayer um, issue. Rates will rise; they already have risen, and that's painful.
1: Well, I, I, of course, I did, I, I'm of i glad you clarified that, both of you. I, I wasn't suggesting it was a complete solution, but, Greg, I think it's safe to say there are many people out there who think are, find this very controversial, and, and there's been political campaigning against the amount of money that's being spent on, on these uh, new plants. So I do think it's a worth at least examining a little bit, Greg.
2: Yeah, and we talked about political will earlier. There was political will to, to to build Vogel. It took a tremendous lift by not just Governor Deal's administration and legislative leaders, but also before that. You know, I, I look back at the archives. I wrote a story back in 2006 about um, Energy Secretary Samuel Bodman came to Waynesboro, Georgia, to push um, to end a 30-year hiatus. In